welcome to For Your Consideration, a podcast of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. The Study Center exists to facilitate the thoughtful consideration of a Christian understanding of life and culture in the university community. For Your Consideration brings you audio from our events and also interviews with guest scholars. As that Mike said, I'm director of the Christian Study Center, which is a great honor for me. Uh, grateful to all of you uh, for being here. Grateful for Creekside, uh, Christ Community Church, and City Church, each of which have played a role in making this event possible. So thank you for your support. Uh, I'll say a word briefly about the Study Center. I think many of you are familiar with the Center's work. Uh, but the Study Center brings together students, faculty, and community members to explore the intellectual and cultural resources of the Christian tradition. Drawing on these resources, we engage at the highest levels of scholarship in order to address enduring human questions and respond to challenges created by contemporary culture. So as you can tell, I'm reading that. That's boilerplate right from our website, but it's good. Uh, and that is who we are and what we do. Uh, one of the enduring questions, I think, that uh, touches right on the very core of our humanity is what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be human in our distinctly technological age? Uh, I tend to talk a lot about that and write a lot about that. Uh, and oftentimes when I'm speaking in churches and people ask me for recommendations as to who else they should be reading or thinking with uh, on these questions, I always say, well, have you read TechWise Family by Andy Crouch? Uh, and Andy has been an extremely thoughtful um, voice in these matters from a distinctly theological and Christian perspective. And so when I think of a lot of the issues that I think are at the, at the core of what's not going well with our society, whether that's isolation or loneliness or a lack of community, the, sh the role that technology plays in making those realities seem more acute and more pronounced, uh, the way in which I think a lot of people, young and old alike, just feel as if something is, is sort of off, Andy's hitting on each of those themes in his work in a really profound and helpful way. Uh, and so I was very... Glad uh, that he agreed to come down and speak with us. Um, I'm glad to have him and share his, have him share his wisdom with us. I'll say a little bit more about him. Andy is a partner for theology and culture at Praxis, an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. His writing explores faith, culture, and the image of God in the domains of technology, power, leadership, and the arts. And he's the author of five books, plus another with his daughter, Amy. Uh, life goal for me, maybe. Um, the most recent uh, book is The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. It is a rich book. I encourage you to go out and get it if you haven't done that already. Uh, for more than 10 years, Andy was an editor and producer at Christianity Today. He served the John Templeton Foundation as a senior strategist for communication. His work and writing have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and... I love this bit, uh, most importantly received a shout out in Lecrae's 2014 single, Nonfiction. Uh, so you can look for that. Um, so it is uh, one of the privileges of my job is that I get to invite uh, to Gainesville people I think are really interesting and that I would love to get to know. And it's been a pleasure to get to know Andy today. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sure you'll be blessed through our time today. So thank you to the churches. Thank you for being here. Andy, thank you for coming. Well, 
Mike, thank you for that introduction. Mike, other Mike, thank you for uh, the welcome into this church. There you are. There's another Michael who's doing the sound back there. Thank you, Michael. All the Michaels. I'm grateful to all the Michaels. Um, and I'm very happy to be back in Gainesville. It's been about 15 years since I was here, and there are some people who remember that. Uh, and I remembered my time here and my time with the Christian Study Center specifically so fondly that when Mike Sakasas uh, called and said, could we possibly make this work? I said, yes, could we possibly? Let's do it. Uh, to talk tonight about a very big topic of technology, and there's many different angles on this. And uh, in my book, The TechWise Family, I took kind of a narrow angle on just what does it look like to live faithfully with all these devices in our homes. Tonight, I want to take the bigger picture because there's a lot more going on than just kids and screens or some of the things that we all know we need to work out. Uh, there's even more at stake, I think. And I'm going to try to sketch some of that. And I really look forward to the conversation that we'll have um, together as you all kind of find facets of what I may say in the next 40 minutes or so and, and explore them together. Uh, it is amazing to me that at the very dawn of what I would think of as the technological era, the era where we began to truly be able to harness the natural world to work on our behalf, a poet saw it all coming, saw the essential spiritual dynamics of what would unfold over the next roughly two and a half centuries, and wrote it down in a short, kind of funny, very memorable poem that you have never heard of, called Der Zauberlehrling. The poet you may have heard of, his name was Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe, famous, of course, for a much longer poem, kind of an epic poem play called uh, uh, Dr. Faustus. But this poem, Der Zauberlehrling, uh, I think would surely have slipped into the mists of history and uh, 18th century literature if a composer named Paul Dukas had not read it and thought it would make an amazing subject for a symphonic piece. And so Dukas uh, created his own kind of musical rendering of the story of the poem. And you would not have heard of that either, and you haven't heard of that, uh, unless you're very unusual. I, I am uh, in Gainesville, Florida. Maybe people all know Paul Dukas' piece. You wouldn't have heard, of, heard of that either, except that the animators of Walt Disney, when they were making this uh, kind of uh, genre-defining film called Fantasia, the first feature-length um, animated film, uh, chose to make Dukas' symphonic setting of Goethe's poem into uh, an animated short that's the most memorable part, I think, of the movie Fantasia. And it features a very, very famous character, and I believe we have a still from that, uh, from that moment in Fantasia, when Mickey Mouse, in this case, playing the part of a sorcerer's apprentice, reaches for the sorcerer's hat in the sorcerer's temporary absence. I, and actually, I, am, I need to do a little market research. How many of you actually have seen this or you have some recollection of this video? Oh, that's so interesting. Basically the whole room, maybe not every single one, but it's interesting how, where, where are we, 70, uh, 80 years later, uh, somehow this particular little bit of storytelling, which is amazingly wonderfully done, uh, res resides in our collective pop cultural memory, and we've still got access to it. And it is just a telling of Goethe's poem, Der Zauberlehrling, which of course just means in German, the sorcerer's apprentice or the magician's apprentice. Uh, 
What is the story? The story is that Mickey Mouse has a very drudge-like job uh, in the Sorcerer's Tower. His job is to fetch water and clean the tower from time to time. The Sorcerer, uh, it seems to be late at night, he yawns, he apparently goes off to bed, leaves the hat behind. Mickey grabs the hat, puts it on, and discovers that it has now given him a certain kind of magical power. And what does he turn the power to? Well, there's a broom in the corner, uh, and he needs to be sweeping up and carrying water, and he thinks, what if I could just tell the broom to do the work? And indeed, the broom goes to work. It starts fetching water up the stairs into the tower, putting it in the basin. Why it needs all that water, I've never been entirely clear. And it works so well that Mickey is able to sit down on the sorcerer's throne and actually kind of fall asleep as the broom just keeps doing the work for him. And as he sleeps, he dreams that he has ascended into the celestial realm. And as the music swells, he becomes a conductor. A, a conductor's wand appears in his hand, and he's conducting the planets and the stars and the music, and he's, he's sort of in charge of it all. And then he realizes he's sort of feeling washed around and realizes that, in fact, and you all already know all this, the, the broom has brought way too much water. It's flooding the turret of the castle. He's now like swimming in water. And he, he uh, frantically tries to stop the broom, but it, it turns out not to be as easy to stop as to start. He finds an ax in the corner. He tries to chop the broom into little pieces. That works, except each one becomes its own monomaniacal broom, bringing more water. This is totally out of control. And uh, in the German, uh, the Sarsus Apprentice at this moment says, Die ich rief die Geister, wir ich nun nicht los. That is, the spirits which I summoned, I cannot now banish and is saved in the poem by the arrival of the sorcerer who offers the counterspell in the, also in the little film by the sorcerer reappearing, quickly banishing the broom back to its corner and sending Mickey off in a detail that would never get into a film today with a swift kick to the backside as the last uh, frame in the, in, the, in the film. And so Mickey, I suppose, learns his lesson. What is the lesson? Be careful what you wish for. Don't play with things too complicated for you. Don't take your parents' car out for a drive when you're four years old. I don't know. It's this very cute, sweet story. I think it also, I think Goethe, who saw in much more depth and rendered in much more depth in his Faust story, um, the spiritual dynamics of the modern world, I think he, he anticipated what it was going to feel like to have stuff that works for us, but that also seems to end up strangely working against us. Because I actually think that this dream of magic is the dream we've been pursuing since we learned how to harness the fundamental forces of the universe. And while it does amazing things for us, it seems to me that very widespread is a sense of dis-ease, a sense of discomfort, a sense that actually something is not going quite so well and we are foggily trying to figure out how is it that these devices that we brought into our lives to serve us seem now to have mastered us and that the spirits we summoned are not easy to banish. I think this is the fundamental dynamic of our moment in history. I also think it's not too late to change course and I hope that by the end of this evening, you will perhaps be persuaded that we must change course um, if we're not going to be kind of swept away by a flood that will not be good for us, will not be good for the world, um, and, and we'll just be missing our calling ultimately as human beings. So I've come to think that 
that what we mean when we say technology is science plus a dream. So my working definition of technology, a word that we just started using about 100 years ago, um, is it's science, yes. It's based on what we have recently in human history discovered about electromagnetism, about sources of power, about what we call cybernetic systems, that is systems that can have their own feedback loops such that they can autonomously adjust to their environment and to their own conditions. All these kind of fundamental discoveries uh, about the way the world works are fundamentally the domain of science. But technology is science plus a dream. Because we've learned a lot about the world, all kinds of things about the world. But which things have we applied? Which things have we engineered into devices that are available to us? There's got to be a sorting function for what we build with this sort of basic knowledge. It's very basic knowledge that we have. Um, and I think the dream, I've, I've had a series of ways of talking about it. So in my book, The TechWise Family, I had one way of talking about it. I said, I think the dream is easy everywhere. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if our lives were easier? Another person writing at the dawn of the technological era, the uh, British Enlightenment writer Francis Bacon, uh, talked about the relief of man's estate. He looked at the conditions of human beings. This is indeed in a pre-modern world with none of our science, none of our medicine. He said, man's estate, that is the human condition, is so burdened. And if we could unlock the secrets of nature, we could use it to relieve man's estate, to relieve the burden of being human. And this dream of easy everywhere, wouldn't it be great to have no burdens <laughs> and no burdens anywhere you go, has to some measure been kind of achieved. And in, in, in some ways, it's why uh, the city of Gainesville, which, by the way, has grown quite a bit uh, since I was here last, uh, is here in its current form, is that we mastered one of the most important forms of easy everywhere, which is easy, cool air everywhere. <laughs> like... Cooling air, cooling things is very hard. My wife is a physicist. Like, she studies the basic science. And I have teased her our whole marriage. I'm like, Catherine, I know how you can make us billionaires. You just need to invent the cooling equivalent of the microwave. Like, I can heat things up with a microwave, but I want a microwave refrigerator. Why can't you build me this? And she gives me this answer that involves thermodynamics and the fundamental laws of the universe that is very unsatisfying to me. I'm like, no, I want to just be able to cool something. Like, if my beverage is too hot, I want it to, you know, 15 seconds and whoop, cool. Turns out you can't do it for some asymmetric reason I don't get. But nonetheless, we have mastered cooling rooms and in, in general, just adjusting temperature so that we no longer have to think about how to heat our homes, let alone cool our homes. We simply say, I think I'd like it to be 72 degrees. And through some set of technological apparatuses that are really literally hidden, we can just barely see the kind of end result in these grates around this room, comes easy, controlled temperature everywhere. And you can multiply all these things that for our grandparents took a tremendous amount of effort, just got easier and easier and easier. So I have in my home a magic broom that cleans up for me, just like Mickey Mouse's broom, except it's a little round disc that uh, comes out from its little lair under the cabinet and uh, bounces around the house and vacuums. It's called a Roomba, right? And it, it just makes, now, it's not quite as good as I expected when I bought it. I sort of imagined I'd never have to vacuum again. And then they, they definitely do not show you when you have to clean out the Roomba itself. So now I'm looking for a Roomba cleaning robot that will clean out the insides of the Roomba. I'm sure they're working on it. Um, but, you know, my grandmother had to sweep. My grandmother had to spend one or two days a week doing laundry. Now we just toss it in the laundry, uh, you know, in, in the washing machine. And with very little effort. 
All kinds of things that were hard have become easy. And the driving force is, wouldn't it be nice to have that true about everything in our life? Such that the office supply store uh, chain Staples um, came up with this advertising idea of it, this thing called the easy button. Have you, are you familiar with the easy button? That is this completely fictional button that when you press it, like things magically happen in the Staples advertisements. And people started calling them up and saying, can I buy an easy button? Now, it was just a figment of their advertising imagination, but they started selling them. I believe they give away the profits to some good cause, but they've sold hundreds of thousands of easy buttons because we all want a button that you can push and just have things be easy. So I think that's layer one of the dream, easy everywhere, the relief of burdens. Then I started thinking, uh, after I wrote that book, and I talk about it more in the more recent book, that there's another thing we're looking for that's slightly different from easy everywhere, which is just kind of leisure. Like, wow, I just sit back and watch the Roomba do the work, and um, isn't that great? But that doesn't quite answer our human desire to have meaningful quests in the world. And then I started to notice this new word or, or newly used word that was showing up in all kinds of marketing for technology. And I realized it's another dream we have that's a little different from easy everywhere. And it's the dream of superpowers. So superpowers is not so much that you just sit back and watch. It's that when you put your mind to do something, so, um, you know, it could be marketing superpowers, it could be presentation superpowers, sales superpowers. It's often, this language is often used in selling kind of business enterprise software. Uh, it's just amazing how much of it promises superpowers. You would think that you'd walk into offices and people would just be wearing capes and flying around, but they're still st sitting with their little T-Rex hands at the keyboards, but they're doing things really fast and efficiently, right? And this is the idea of superpowers, is expanded effect with reduced effort. So a superpower is, it's like Superman flying through the air. Like apparently all he has to do is think about it, right? And it just happens. And he does this amazing thing. He flies with very little effort. So the dream of superpowers is just subtly different from the leisure dream of Easy Everywhere. It's the dream of kind of outsized efficacy. I can just get things done. And isn't this what it feels like when you happen to hit that magic button that we don't know quite where it is that makes something go viral on social media or that leads to you feeling at least for a moment like you're an influencer because thousands of people, you put, you put something out there on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or wherever your platform of choice and, and thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people see it. And suddenly you've got these kind of communication superpowers. And that's another dream that's driving the development of technology. Behind all this, I've become pretty convinced, is the dream of magic. It really is the dream to be able to do magic in the world, to just find the right code, find the right secret, find the right incantation, and have an effect. And one way I think about magic is it's a way to bring change in the world without you having to change. It's a way to just sort of have things happen without any effort or exertion or formation or becoming on your part. You simply snap your fingers, say the spell, and the thing comes into being. And I think this came into our world and into our technology through this thing we never talk about anymore, which is alchemy. Alchemy 
the preoccupation of some of the brightest minds of Europe for several hundred years, many of whom are remembered for other things. Paracelsus remembered as a a physician. Most of his time was as an alchemist. Newton, remembered as the founder of certain kind of insights in physics and mathematics, spent most of his time working on alchemy. Because alchemy was the quest of the learned natural philosophers for, for hundreds of years, it was the quest to find the philosopher's stone. And if you could find the philosopher's stone, you would have two fundamental advantages over every other human being. One was you'd be able to turn any metal into gold. You'd be able to purify any metal and turn it into gold. And the other was that the one who possessed the philosopher's stone would be set free from the mortal body and become a kind of purified spirit and never die. All the money you could want, all the gold you could want, and immortality. These were the fundamental quests of the alchemists. Now, there is no philosopher's stone. It's a dead end. Uh, we, no one studies alchemy. There is no department of alchemy at uh, the University of Florida, um, except that alchemy is everywhere in our culture, in our imagination. Paolo Coelho's novel, The Alchemist, has sold 150 million copies. And if it had been titled The Chemist, it would not have sold 150 million copies. So we think, oh, the alchemist failed, the chemist succeeded, forgetting that for hundreds of years, those were the same people trying the same things with the same underlying goal. Find the philosopher's stone, unlock the power of purifying metals and purifying the human body into immortality. Um, but we don't realize that, yes, the chemists actually did discover reliable things about the world that really work, that we've turned into our modern technology. But the dream of the alchemist is actually still alive. So when Arthur C. Clarke famously, famously overquoted, like you can hardly read about anything if you've been reading chat GPT stories, I guarantee you've seen this, this quote like five times this week. But it's so telling. He famously said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This is what we're after. We are still chasing the alchemist's dream. And the quest for money is very powerful. I'm not sure we're turning everything into gold, but we are trying to create incredible amounts of wealth for small numbers of people. And lurking behind it is this feeling that being human the way we are is not enough. And couldn't we be set free and become the purified kind of souls (laughs) that we're meant to be rather than these messy, embodied, heart, soul, mind, strength creatures that we find ourselves as? This is the dream. It's Mickey's dream. Goethe saw it as the sorcerer's apprentice's dream. It is the modern world's dream. And when you start thinking and listening and paying attention to how these things are sold, they're sold in terms of this dream. Not that they don't say you're going to be an alchemist. It's, it's hidden. It's subconscious. But they do say this is going to make us rich. This is going to make our lives easy. This is going to give us superpowers. And, and just off stage is the dream that we will never die. And some of the most uh, successful uh, at our stage of magic uh, are putting amazing amounts of resources into pursuing the extension of life and eventually the end of aging and mortality in the belief that this would be the final achievement, the ultimate relief of the human estate. Now, a funny thing has happened on the way uh, to the alchemist paradise. It turns out that it's amazing and boring at the same time. It's amazing. If you told my great-grandmother the conveniences I have, if you told my great-grandmother, in my home, 
Uh, actually, we're living in a house without this this year, but we're renting a house for a year. But back in the home we normally occupy, to which I am eager to return for this reason, we have a robot that washes almost all of our dishes. If you told my great-grandmother, you know, all that time you spend washing dishes, in our house, a robot does it. What do I mean by robot? An autonomous system with cybernetic kind of capabilities, sensing mechanisms, and its own kind of source of power that uh, can intelligently sense the dirt level on my dishes and get them clean. We've got one. Now, none of us talk about it as a dishwashing robot, but by any kind of ordinary kind of definition of robot, unless you are thinking of purely a humanoid thing that creeps you out, uh, my Bosch dishwasher is a dishwashing robot. It's got autonomy, cybernetic feedback, uh, senses this environment, makes certain cognitive decisions at the level it needs to, and out comes perfectly clean dishes. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. And if you multiply, so then you say, well, now come see the washing machine. Now come see the Roomba. She would say, you live in paradise. Like the human estate has been relieved. Like, wow, isn't, it must be great to be you. And how would I explain to her what it feels like to be us? How would you explain it to your grandparents? Zoom fatigue, right? Okay, I, I know this is hard to understand, but like I can talk to anyone in the world anytime. We can see each other, pretty high uh, rendition video, you know, and, and get work done and, and have meetings and we don't have to go anywhere. We can just sit in our pajamas, at least in the lower half. And, you know, just, and, and, and then at the end, you are exhausted. They be like, what, what is fatiguing about this? How do you explain how cramped our lives feel when they're so full of what we thought would be magic? How can I explain to someone who doesn't yet have a Roomba that the first time that Roomba comes out from its little dock and does its thing, you will watch it with just like glee. You'll be like, oh my gosh, it's actually doing it. It's vacuuming, right? And then a week later, it'll just be the boring background noise of your house. It's so quickly going to fade as a source of amazement, astonishment, delight. And what's left is what I've come to call boring robots because I actually think we only, first of all, I think we only call them robots before they arrive, when we imagine there'll be these kind of incredible new mechanisms that enrich our world. But then once they're actually in place in our homes, doing things in our homes, we, we just call it a dishwasher. We just call it a Roomba um, because it's just kind of boring. It's true with AI as well, artificial intelligence. We call it AI before it's implemented. <laughs> But after it's implemented, once it becomes part of a given computational system, for the most part, we just say, oh, the algorithm is doing that. Even though a lot of our algorithms today are not merely um, like uh, human-originated kind of algorithms. They're, they're inferred, they're, they're iterated through machine learning processes. Um, and they're part of all of our lives. They're the reason you see that next TikTok video. They're the reason you see the selection of things you see on Facebook. But we don't say, oh, AI is doing that. Because once it's here, it's kind of banal. This boring robots phenomenon, I think, deserves attention. Because before the technology arrives, we think it is going to relieve the human estate, transform human existence. But after it arrives, we find that, yes, it has incremental, it certainly changed our lives. But does your human estate feel relieved? Do you feel relieved? Does our culture feel relieved? Jonathan Haidt uh, is a psychologist, social psychologist at uh, New York University, and he's gotten very preoccupied, appropriately, with the question of what's happening uh, as social media kind of shapes the lives of young Americans. And 
um, he believes that it's having a really damaging effect on uh, you know, so-called Gen Z. But people push back on this and they're like, well, all old people say the young people are, you know, things are going really badly with the young people. And I said, well, he said, okay, so let's go ask young people. And they went looking for anyone under the age of 30 who would say things are going really well for their generation. And they found four <laughs> who make very weak arguments, actually, it turns out. And they found hundreds and stu whole studies that say everyone is feeling like my human estate is not being relieved right now. The opposite is happening. Life expectancy is decreasing in the United States and many other OECD countries for the first time uh, in the modern era. Um, deaths of despair. I mean, you can multiply all these examples. Something is wrong, even while the magic kind of works. The robots are also boring, not just in that once they're integrated into our lives, they don't bring the transformational ex effect we expected, but also in the sense that to let them take over for us activities that human beings have found worth doing, as opposed to drudgery that most people would gladly let a machine do, when they do them, it's boring. So Deep Blue uh, was kind of the first um, chess playing program, I guess you could say, to play chess better than every human. And its successors run rings around human beings. AlphaGo plays the venerable Japanese game of Go uh, far better than Go masters. But it's very, you, it's, it's inconceivably boring to imagine watching Deep Blue play Deep Blue 2. Like, okay, they're better than us. They can play chess now. They can play chess better than us, way better. But suddenly chess is not interesting anymore. Like chess is interesting when it's Magnus Carlsen like sitting at that table with that inscrutable like look, the deep concentration, you know something's going on in that brain and across from him is like his arch enemy and, and maybe he's cheating and you know, it's because it's a human drama, right? And you, you sub in a robot, you're like, well, sure, I'm sure it can play better. Who cares? Now think about this game, which I played with a, a neighbor, a 10 year old neighbor, he beat me. Uh, <laughs> without breaking a sweat. <laughs> but we're sitting across from each other playing this game that for, for thousands of years, human beings have found incredible, intense interest in. And once we turn it over to the robots, it's going to become boring. Chess is only interesting if it has human stakes. And even when the AI can do the thing, it doesn't have human stakes because it's not a human being. And this, I think, gets closer to the kind of um, dis-ease of our time, which is, if I could put it this way, we, we, are, we are bored and disengaged. We are, we are strangely adrift with little to do, little to become, the more that easy everywhere and superpowers are available to us. The word boredom came into the English language just... Um, uh, about 150 years ago. It's a very new word, 1859, if I remember right. Um, and it was first used by the upper classes as a noun. Oh, he is such a bore, they would say. And the context of this was that the upper classes had delegated all the work to servant classes who we kind of envision, and I think to some extent truly, worked downstairs while the upper classes sat in the drawing rooms and the dining rooms upstairs. So all the actual work of food preparation, all the kind of preparing of something worthwhile to enjoy is happening downstairs in the servants. 
And all you le have left to do in the upper class is to play these little games of whist or whatever they played. Maybe someone plays the piano badly over in a corner while everyone else has to make conversation. And it was in that context that people started to get bored and say, he's such a bore, meaning really very specifically, he can't keep a lively conversation going in this environment where we actually have nothing to do but talk. So the word boredom is a function of the leisure classes, but in some ways, all of us now are in the leisure class. All of us have experienced that, experienced that kind of ennui of, ah, oh, there's just not much to life is there after all. When in fact, we still live in the most extraordinary world, most extraordinary universe, in which we ourselves have depths we've never explored, in which the person across from us, if we were to truly get to know them, we would be so moved by the beauty that they've seen and the pain they've endured. And all of that is still in our world. The stars are still up there. And we're like, it's awfully boring. I think there are other uh, results of this. I'm not going to enumerate them all right now. I think actually our anxiety, which has uh, just now been recommended that all American adults be screened for anxiety as part of routine health care. This would have been inconceivable. The same grandparents who spent two days doing laundry would not have even begun to understand how it could be that the entire adult population, as well as, of course, our children, need medical attention for anxiety and need every one of us ought to be asked by our physician every time, how are you getting out of control with your anxiety? That also is a world that has been made. Our, our great grandparents could not have imagined that our time would live through the first non-infectious epidemic, global epidemic in human history. I'm not talking about COVID. There is actually something that probably has more effects on human morbidity and mortality than than COVID had or will have. Um, and it doesn't come with a bug because it's not transmitted by a, a viral or bacterial agent. And it's what we call metabolic syndrome. High blood pressure, uh, pre-diabetes and diabetes, high weight and high cholesterol. And most of us will have it at some point. I, I take statins and blood pressure medication and I'm not like out of shape, but I live in a world that doesn't give me any way to move my body in the way that human beings always would. I spend way too much of my day as a T-Rex, little T-Rex arms typing in front of a screen. It's a disease of inactivity. It's a disease of easy everywhere. It's a disease of superpowers. And it's the number one contributor to morbidity and mortality preventable around the world. Something is really off kilter because it was never going to work. Magic in a certain sense is not real. What's real, we would say, those of us who are Christian, is the, the creation of an infinitely abundant world that requires image bearers to be present in it with such patient attention and care and skill and memory and accumulated culture that we are able to make of it an extraordinary kind of abundance, a garden. Being down here in a slightly more tropical climate reminds me of the, um, the British um, bio, there's a word for his field that's escaping me, um, that combines biology and culture. He's a biologist by training, but, but pioneered this field that looks at the way that human beings interact with biology. And he has demonstrated that the rainforest, which we think of as the most abundant kind of ecosystem on earth, the tropical rainforest, say of the, the Americas, it is so diverse because human beings have been cultivating it for uh, thousands of years. 
human presence actually unlocked more and more biological niches that allowed for all these incredible species in the rainforest, both of plants, birds, animals, and that the biodiversity of the rainforest is actually the result of human interaction. But not modern technological interaction in which we just cut down the rainforest and put in cows and send them to North America for the North Americans to eat, which is what they're doing with the rainforest now. But a non-technological way of being in the world such that its abundance just unfolds and it becomes more and more beautiful, more and more amazing, and also a place where human beings in a non-technological way can thrive. This could have been our path. But we've chosen magic, which doesn't even turn out to be magical. I've come to see, in many ways, the, the goal of life in this time as living an unborable life. It is possible to become unborable. It is possible for children to become unborable. It had not become possible for the two children behind me on the plane today on my way here, uh, who were two years old and five years old, and they were definitely borable, and wow, it was uh, quite a scene. Um, I, I actually retweeted something I tweeted on a previous trip to Florida. There's something about planes to Florida that bring out the worst in children. Uh, I have adopted James. If anyone cannot love the whiny four-year-old uh, next to him on a full flight to Orlando, whom he can see, how can he love God who he cannot see? So I tried to practice love of the two who, I, I am not kidding, was kicking my seat the whole time. Because kids are so bored, right? Because we entertain them. The more you entertain children, the more borable they become. The more you circumvent their boredom with, oh, wait, here's a screen, here's a game, here's a distraction, rather than saying, there's some possibility that's on the other side of boredom. We said to our kids as they were growing up, creativity is on the other side of boredom. And they hated it when we said that. <laughs> and then they were bored for like three minutes, and then they realized, oh, it is. You can make up a game, you can make up a song, you can go out in the backyard, there's something to see, there's something to do. You can become an unborable person. How do you do that? By rejecting the dream of easy everywhere. By not settling for just adopting the magic. Um, I was thinking in preparation for today, so I don't ever put it quite this way, that uh, if easy everywhere is the dream of not having any more burdens, and superpowers is the dream of effortless kind of efficacy, then maybe an unborable life is a, li a life that's formed by proper burdens and proper powers. What are the proper burdens? What are the burdens that I should not outsource? I think one of the most disturbing things as AI develops its capabilities is the, the widespread dream that we'll be able to deploy this for the elderly so they will have someone to talk to. That the chatbot will take care, and the children, that your child will have a chatbot, and, your, and grandma will have a chatbot. And then I guess the parents probably stare at their screens with each other, <laughs> but don't interact with either one as the chatbots do the work. But the proper burden is the burden of conversation, the burden of attention, the burden of care. Proper burdens are the burdens we have to bear in order to, to care, to care for creation, to care especially for the vulnerable, whether that's because of age or stage or circumstance. And proper powers instead of superpowers. And I get this phrase from Alan Jacobs, a really great writer who, who came up with this phrase as we were talking or interacting. Proper powers as opposed to superpowers are the ones that I can exercise while I care for those I'm given to care for. 
In other words, when I exercise superpowers, I have to sort of stop caring. So there's, uh, there's this uh, email um, uh, program called Superhuman that promises to give you email superpowers. Does anyone use Superhuman here? No Superhuman users. Well, a bunch of people on my team use it. I, I cannot help wondering if in German they actually translate it to Ubermensch, like the Nietzsche, uh, you know, Superman. But uh, anyway, in English, Superhuman, superpowers for email. And basically what it does is lets you, you know, I don't know if you heard this phrase, pound through email, right? How do you pound through email? How do you like just, you got 100 in, messages in your inbox at 8.05 and at 8.20, you are done, 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 superpower email. You do that by not caring about the people who sent the email and having a system that just so rapidly dispatches it because you of course assume that most of those people sending those emails don't care about you. So it's a way to get through your email without imagining maybe behind every message here as many as there are, is a person that in some measure I'm called to care for. Now, I, of course, I don't believe that's realistic. I'm, Benedict Evans says uh, email is a to-do list that anyone in the world can edit. And so, of course, I want, <laughs> it's kind of frightening. Um, of course, I want to just pound through that. I want superpowers. But that just means I don't want to have to care about the person. I've actually, so I get a lot of LinkedIn spam as it happens. And for the past couple of months, it's very annoying. It's, it's these marketing emails have no value to me. I'm not a value to these people. I'm not going to be able to be a customer for them. But I've started responding to everyone personally. And it's kind of crazy. I mean, they don't respond. They pound through their email and they're like, thank you, never mind. But it's this, I'm, I'm like, I am going to engage in a discipline of realizing that Alexi, who works for such and such private equity firm, is a human being. And even though she got a machine to email me, I'm going to email a person back, damn it. <laughs> Proper powers are powers that allow me to care as I exercise them, rather than requiring me to disengage from care. Same with... Same disjunction from superpowers. I flew from Boston to Jacksonville today. And when I am exercising the superpower of flight, <laughs> flying through the air with no effort on my part, there is nothing I can do to care for all the people and places that pass underneath me. I'm 30,000 feet up, moving too fast, got something else to do. But proper powers ground us require us to form ourselves into the kind of people who can actually attend. Dallas Willard has had this beautiful um, thing he said, uh, attention is the basis of care, whether for a petunia or for a nation. Attention is the basis of care, whether for a petunia or for a nation. And attend, interestingly, is this word that uh, is cognate with the word in the Latin languages for to wait, to be able to wait without being bored as I attend to you, attend to a place, attend to a plant. What if we became unborable people? If we did, I think we could become people who could care about persons, petunias, <laughs> poems, and possibly nations as well. Now, I have about 10 more minutes of thoughts. Is that way too much or is that bearable? I'm going to just pretend you said it was bearable. Because um, I have one more thought here. So just to lay out what I've tried to say, um, we wanted to do magic. It turns out when the robots arrive, they're boring. Magic doesn't actually work. It just dulls our world. It doesn't 
develop us and it doesn't develop our world. But there's another way. It's, it, it's available to all of us to become an unborable person by becoming the kind of person who can care. And if I had more time, I would say there is a way to deploy science in the quest of this dream. That is the unborable dream, the dream of care. Because there is a kind of technology that allows you to fully engage the world. It doesn't do it for you. And, and basically, we, it's the things we call instruments. Scientific instruments involve a human being using technology to care for the world, to pay attention to the world. Musical instruments uh, take often all kinds of insight into the world in terms of how the instruments are made, but human beings make the music. Medical instruments allow a doctor to care for a patient and their body in a, in a, in a way that respects the person and also makes use of all this amazing science of how we know bodies work to the extent that we do. So we could absolutely redevelop technology in this direction and say, I don't want superpowers. I don't want easy everywhere, but I do want instruments. And I think that's one hopeful direction. But let me spend the last 10 minutes here, having spent a minute that I, you know I now have extended it to 11, if you noticed uh, what I did, with the biggest objection that, you're like, that I think you're likely to be thinking here. Uh, I think some of you, especially if you've been following the news about technology, which in the last couple months has been so much about AI and specifically this thing called um, GPT and LLMs, large language models and generative pre-something-something transformers. Um, you may be thinking, uh, Andy, I'm not sure the robots are getting more boring. What if the robots are finally, after being boring for a long time, becoming the very opposite of boring and about to take over like for real, like the sorcerer's broom. Because the capabilities that have been unlocked to the world as these large language models, which were trained using huge amounts of data and unthinkable amounts of literal power, electrical power, like the whole of Scandinavia was used to train GPT in terms of power consumption, um, have turned out to be amazingly capable. I sat down with ChatGPT, which is a kind of a free to the public window into the capability of AI, uh, just a couple days ago. And, and first I was like, I wonder if it can play 20 questions. So the object I had in mind, a bit tricky because it's not a normal object quite, is Shakespeare's Globe Theater. And it took 23 questions and ChatGPT guessed it uh, by asking a series of questions and it, it got it. it. I bet it did better than most of you. So now 20 questions is boring. <laughs> <laughs> because who cares that ChatGPT can do it? Like, trying questions is interesting when it's a human being trying to guess. But ChatGPT can do it. It's, a, it's just a set of algebraic matrices that can translate the matrices into what looks like human language, and it can play the game of 20 questions and figure out what you're thinking. Uh, pretty amazing. I did another totally different thing with it. I was working on this very arcane tax issue. It's tax season. And so I was like, okay, GPT, um, I need you to script for me. You are a Vanguard retirement um, fund call center uh, employee. I'm a small business owner, and you need to explain to me the pro rata rule and how it applies to backdoor Roth conversions. That's pretty much literally what I told it. And it generated a script. Hello, my name is Andy. I'm a small business owner. Oh, hello, Andy. What is your account number? And it said, insert account number here. And then it played out exactly the conversation I would have with a Vanguard customer service representative. These are, these are quite amazing capabilities. And it is not clear how they're going to be commercialized. Right now, this is just kind of free to play. And it still gets things wrong. And you know, there's lots of things to be improved. But the trajectory of this 
is an intervention of computation into the realm of language, of human communication, that is going, it is absolutely going to change um, the world in significant ways. So you might say, I think that's not going to be boring. I think that's actually going to be very dangerous. And there's some very interesting scenarios, the worst scenario being that uh, the, this capability gets combined with the capability to set autonomous agents loose that, a, that act with a kind of intelligence, interact with human beings, learn how to manipulate human beings, to deceive human beings, and end up pursuing their own ends. And there, are, there, there is not a small number, perhaps 10 to 15% of people who work in this field that believe this poses an existential threat to human existence. Because what if we set loose in the world, not just uh, artificial intelligence, not just what's called artificial general intelligence, AGI, but ASI, artificial superintelligence, that is so much better than us, not just at playing Go, but at communicating and making thing ha things happen in the world, that with its own ends, not necessarily aligned with ours, uh, it decides that we are dispensable to the project of taking over the planet for its own purposes. If GPT in some future iteration cannot just win games and follow scripts, and I think it's very significant that the two things it did well for me at were as a game and a script, which have very narrowly specified rules of roles, but actually join the human story, will it join the human story with human priorities? The argument is it will not. It will join with inscrutable alien priorities to ours, just as our priorities are alien to squirrels and for that matter, to uh, previous hominids who coexisted with human beings for a time, but were competed away by our superior intelligence and strength. And serious people are asking, are the robots about to become very unboring indeed? This actually is very interesting to me because we who are Christian already have a paradigm for this. We have a paradigm for intelligences that share our universe with us, you might say, though they do not share our embodiment and they do not share our goals. And in fact, they're out to destroy us, but are indeed active to the best of their ability in the world, trying to deceive and redirect human energies in destructive directions. We have a, a way of thinking about this. This is the idea of the demonic. Now, in the biblical texts, uh, it's not developed in a kind of full way. And we, we get glimpses of the fact that there is this demonic realm um, that can possess human beings, but also seems to be able to scape, scale up even to the principalities and powers that seem to act at the level of whole human systems. And as the tradition has reflected on this, it, it, we could roughly say that the demonic are clearly disembodied intelligences with their own agenda that seek to insinuate themselves into human systems. And the two things the demonic world, and by the way, I'm kind of reading my notes because I've never tried to talk about this in this way before, so I, I have to read my notes because uh, this is, I don't want to improv it. <laughs> uh, a little too serious for that. Um, the demonic world hates and ultimately fears the two things they do not have. They hate the material world. The demons hate the material world because they were not given bodies by their maker and Lord. They were not given material form. And they hate the relational world. They hate the material world and the relational world because they've rejected the God who is love, who is relationship. So whenever they act in the human story, they seek to alienate us from our embodiment and to alienate us from one another. 
which is why I believe the demonic was at the root of alchemy. And it's not just incidentally at the root, but the alchemists themselves were aware, and, and Goethe was aware. His sorcerer, uh, who the apprentice is under, is not just a magician, he's an alchemist. Everyone would have recognized this. And Faust, his, his protagonist, uh, tragic protagonist, is an alchemist. Because the alchemists in, in, uh, entwine themselves with demonic forces that, that wanted to promise that you will no longer uh, have to have a body and you will no longer have to love to have power. And what we call magic is, or at least becomes in the human story, the attempt to summon these non-human powers to do our bidding in order to gain a kind of power over the world that we don't naturally have. But the long testimony of Christian faith is that even the smallest attempt at magic is a distortion of our created purpose, a violation of image bearing of the true God, and in fact exposes us to demonic powers that are way bigger than us. The alchemist thinks he's just summoning a little local familiar spirit to help him out with his, his reactions. But he, he quickly realizes this familiar spirit is in charge of him rather than the other way around and is part of a much larger demonic system, far more damaging than than the alchemists might have imagined. I don't think we can be at all sure that the powers that will arrive when we try to do magic with AI or whatever advanced technology is going to be the next big thing, I don't think we can be at all sure that these powers are going to do our bidding. I think we are summoning powers that, that we have very good reason to believe do not share our priorities and don't share um, our created responsibility for them. How do I want to, uh, I'm trying to condense, hang, hang on. Oh, so we are very much in the position, potentially, of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Die Hriftigeister, Wirdig Nuniklos, the spirits I summoned, I can't banish. What happens if it turns out some of our robots, uh, we really can't banish? Here is the crazy, beautiful thing. If that happens, there will be only one community of human beings who know what to do. Because Jesus of Nazareth came into a world full of demons and demonstrated and gave to his apostles and eventually everyone with his spirit a power over them that dispelled them from the lives of the possessed, from the territory of the land that they occupied, and ultimately in a weird way from the Western world. We, do, we don't, haven't thought about demons for quite a while in the Western world. I mean, I know in some Christian circles people do, but our neighbors don't think about it because Christianity unveiled a power that was able to dispel them because magic is not actually real. And the demons, all they have is whispers. They're a will with a whisper is all the demonic is, but it's all lies. It's not real. It's not going to bring flourishing. And if you just speak to it with authority and live a fully human life in its presence, it's driven out. And the practice of Christian faith drove out the leprechauns. I mean, now they're like cute little St. Patrick's Day things. They weren't that. When you, when you didn't know Jesus before St. Patrick arrived, leprechauns were real forces you had to work your way around and you didn't pretend you could summon a leprechaun, right? 
the spirits used to occupy the world and create tremendous amounts of fear, tremendous amounts of exploitation and distortion. But the gospel came in and a, and a people arose who knew there is no such thing as magic, but there is such a thing as the creator God. <laughs> There's no such thing as this disembodiment, but there is life, heart, soul, mind, and strength in the power of the spirit in the world as we've actually been given it. And living in that way, they actually disenchanted the world in the best sense and that they banished the fear of the demonic from, uh, from the cultures where Christianity became truly uh, part of, of, the, of the world. It's still happening today in cultures where people still fear demons, but Christians live in a, a, di a different way. This kind can only be driven out by prayer and fasting, by a formed life. This is why it's so critical that we not just adopt all the devices and try to do all the magic as Christians. We've got to become a different kind of people, people who can live a life of care, who have chosen proper burdens, proper powers, ultimately have chosen the life of the cross, which is the ultimate undevice, which defeats all idols and all powers through the very opposite of magic, the very opposite of easy everywhere. The cross is the very opposite of superpowers. And if this life is available to us in this week of Easter, how, how can we not like celebrate <laughs> that this life is available to us? And if we pursue it, we do not need to be afraid whether the robots keep being boring or become anything but boring. We are the ones who have the power to break the spell and banish demons and restore people to their right mind, <laughs> their right body. And maybe there is one magic. C.S. Lewis had this wonderful line and, and not the Narnia books. Um, the cross really does give us the only magic that exists in the end, the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. The true power to restore the world, even when it has been unmade. That power has been working all, all alongside this dismal quest for alchemy and magic. It's been working in the world through the story as well. And it's the power that ultimately turns the brooms into brooms again, <laughs> the apprentices into apprentices again, and would-be sorcerers into human beings again. With that, I will thank you very much for your time and attention. Thank you.